You're listening to the B&H Photography Podcast. For over 40 years, B&H has been the professional source for photography, video, audio, and more. For your favorite gear, news, and reviews, visit us at bnh.com or download the B&H app to your iPhone or Android device. Now here's your host, Alan Weitz. Greetings and welcome to the BH Photography Podcast. David Deal is the founder of and principal attorney at the law office of David C. Deal, PLC, located in Charlottesville, Virginia. He's also a returned guest to our show, and unbeknownst to him, Jason has rebranded David as being our podcast official in house legal counsel. How do you like that? Add that to your resume. We even have a coffee mug with the BH logo on it for you next time you stop by the studio. You're official. Okay. Uh, <laughs> well, okay. Kidding aside, David is a nationally recognized intellectual property attorney specializing in copyright infringement matters on behalf of photographers and businesses, and he has successfully litigated cases of all sizes and complexities in a majority of federal jurisdictions. David has researched and written on the issues regarding the case of Vivian Myers' estate, and in our previous conversation, we focused on his recent case of Russell Brahma versus Violent Used Productions. He's going to provide us with an update on this case, and then then we're going to get into a conversation about his latest case regarding the estate of rural portrait photographer Michael Disfarmer. Anyway, uh, David, welcome back to the show. Good to have you back again. Thank you very much. All right. Um, where do we start on this one here? I'd love. To Are we just catching up? We're starting something new here. Real quick, jump back in. Any update on the Brammer case? And, and maybe I can summarize real quickly. Uh, it was a photo that was taken uh, by a, a local Washington-based uh, freelance photographer. It was used in the website for a, a film festival, a relatively small film festival in that area. It was a street scene at night it was from a, street a rooftop. Scene at night, and they used it without permission. And the there was some other issues regarding it. And they took it. They went all the way to court. You know, nobody wanted to settle. And David handled the case and won. And it became a pretty big case. So David, take it from there. I think. Well, it, it's um, the, the case did. It, it was heard by the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, the the Court of Appeals uh, disagreed uh, with the the district court uh, ruling on the fair use issues. So the case ended up back before the same judge, mm -hmm. uh, Judge Hilton, uh, in the Eastern Eastern District of Virginia. And uh, I, I would say probably a month or two out from from trial, uh, the case finally settled. Oh, it did. Uh, okay. Yes. So it. it um, well, so you were uh, responsible for the reversal that uh, of the the initial decision at, at the appeals level, and then right. when we spoke to you, it still hadn't gone. It was scheduled to go to trial again, and you're saying that of course it settled. So that's it, good. It did. It's good it news, did. right? And, and and like a lot of things, it. It was a it was a relative in the grand scheme of things it's a it's a it's a pretty simple uh, case it's it's not a it's not a case with um, uh, w with uh, potentially very high damages it's a fairly modest case but uh, you know like a lot of like a lot of uh, cases that that ultimately serve as legal precedent it's it's not that it's the issue mm -hmm. it's 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 a it's a specific legal issue that neither neither party wants to budge on and so. Uh, you know, so so either a court of appeals or or uh, a higher court has to rule on things. Mm -hmm. So that that's 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 absolutely what happened in this case. Hmm. So in in this case, then it sounds like they're having settled. No decision has been made. I mean, or the, or does the decision of the appeal court stand up as precedent? 
It does. It does. The okay. the appeals court decision is precedent, and it's a and it turned out to be in the end, it turned out to be a published case, mm-hmm. uh, which means that uh, informally uh, there, there's a difference between uh, a ruling uh, by a court whether or not it's on a on a motion or uh, it's the it's the you know a decision on liability and damages itself but there there's a there's a significant difference between what we describe what we call a a published case or an unpublished case a published case means that someone uh, either at LexisNexis or Westlaw those are the two main um, uh, you know kind of archivists right. uh, yeah Someone, someone at one or both of those those companies deemed the issue and the case to be of some importance, uh, and therefore worthy of uh, being indexed in their systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's what we describe as a published case. Uh, they're much easier to find. Uh, they they hold informally. They hold more weight mm-hmm. when it comes to uh, future citations. So it's, a, it's so, a benchmark case, essentially, right? It is. It okay, is. It's, gotcha. it's, um, it means something. Every, every case, every order, every, every ruling by a court uh, has legal precedent, uh, but published cases... Uh, again, I- informally, they they carry they carry more weight, mm-hmm. and judges are m- are more uh, you know. Th- there's no hard and fast rule, but judges are more likely to follow uh, follow the the guidelines of a published case rather than an unpub- a published case. So yeah. So in the end, while the 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 result uh, and the, the settlement was a fairly modest one. Uh, there, you know, the, the case was well worth uh, following through on, just because of the the issues that the the appeals court cleared up. That's great. I mean, that's great. It's, it's set a precedent, I mean, then. Okay, so people can think twice before pulling the same thing. Theoretically, that's right. So maybe I can ask you, David, then, just to kind of summarize real quickly. There, I remember when we spoke. There was like four ways that where they were trying to defend the infringement? That's right. The really great thing about the opinion is that the appeals court touched on all of the four elements, mm-hmm. uh, and they uh, they emphatically rejected the defendant's arguments on all four of the elements that are to be considered for fair use. Mm-hmm. So uh, they the, the defendant in this case had a, uh, I mean, they, they placed emphasis on 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 more than just one. So just just to you know, the big picture is that the, the four main the four main parts of the fair use consideration are number one is the the purpose and character of the use, um, and specifically whether or not the use was commercial in nature or uh, nonprofit or ed- for educational purposes. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because something is used by a nonprofit for educational purposes doesn't necessarily get you. Uh, get you a, a ruling of fair use, but there's a different. The courts have courts have uh, stated repeatedly that there is a difference mm-hmm. between commercial nature versus educational purposes. Commercial nature is is uh, you know kind of leans much more against fair use, while educational purposes and uh, and use by a nonprofit uh, weighs more heavily in in favor of fair use. And they tried to claim themselves as a nonprofit, and it was kind of shown that they weren't in this case. 
No, not necessarily. In in this case, they you know they're they're not a nonprofit, so they they didn't claim that, but they they claimed that it was not commercial in use. That somehow somehow their use on their commercial website was somehow not commercial. That this was somehow this was somehow this is a very this is a very they're 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 they're, um, a a million different variations of this argument, which is well. we have this commercial commercial website for our commercial business entity that is in the is in the business of making money. But we also have this this other part to our mm. commercial um, website where it's just a blog, and we just you know out of the goodness of our heart, we we just we're just we just want to be the dis, you know the disseminators of of useful information for our clients, and therefore there's a there's a difference between yeah. those two things, and that's exactly what this defendant was claiming hmm. that it was informational. Um, I should so, have just paid the photographer. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So. That's element number one. Mm. Element number two is the nature of the copyrighted work, which means, uh, you know, it was the was the copyrighted work a a one in in the case of a photograph was it a one of a kind photograph of an event that's only happened once in the in the past five hundred years and the, the photographer that took the photograph was the only person there and the only person has the image or was it a photograph of you know a manhole cover mm-hmm. uh, th- that's the difference so there there is a difference between photographs all all images are not created equal when it comes to a determination of fair use. Uh, so the, and this argument always really perplexes me because the argument the defendant made in the Brammer case was, well, it's just a photograph of a street scene. Anyone can take the street scene. You have million, there's a million different versions of this, of this same neighborhood. Well, my argument, my, my, my response to that is always, well, that might be true, but you chose my client's photograph. Mm-hmm. You you chose my photo client's photograph because it stands out. Conceivably, you know, uh, it stands out. It, there is a dip, you know, it's it's of a higher quality. It does what you want it to do. I mean, that's the whole nature of selecting, being selective of you know the type of the type of visual material, photographs or otherwise, that people choose to. To copy. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, so it could even be a situation where the the quality of the photograph may not even be outstanding, but the cropping of it lends itself to the final use better than any other cropping. Maybe it was the only horizontal or vertical, and it was the only one that fit the format they needed. So that makes right. it unique too. And and you might be every every commercial photographer that's that's shot for you know, a, a, a minimal amount of time knows this sometimes, you know, depending on your work, uh, sometimes the value of your photograph is, is not in the marketability of a photograph. The image you make is not necessarily the result of, of careful consideration and lots of money and traveling to some exotic place. Sometimes it's just being in the right place at the right time and having, mm-hmm. having a minimum level of technical ability to make a really good picture mm-hmm. there. And, and I think you, if you're not in the field, people, people don't understand how, how much skill it, it takes to, 
to capture a photograph uh, quickly and you know without without thinking about it too right. much. So there so there there are lots of things that go into uh, the second element. And this photo which is, was also you know as we talked about in the previous episode, it you know was a well made photo. It wasn't just a a, a click. Absolutely. You know, it was mm-hmm. a long exposure. Right. It right. was you know he found the right yeah. angle and you it know, worked so. for a very specific reason. Right. There's a reason why they wanted it. Sure. Also, I want oh, to mention I- this idea that. You know, a value of photograph changes over time. I mean, you may take a, a photo in 1970 of a musician, and it's not, you know, of in demand. But 30 years later, it could be a very in demand photo of a famous yeah. musician. Now, you know, and and that it, it's 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 really interesting you brought it up because that is exactly one of the points that I made at oral argument in front of the Fourth Circuit hmm. uh, Court of Appeals, which is. The, the defendant, uh, the defendant's position was it's just a photograph. It's just a photograph that has has a, you know, it, it was worth, um, um, uh, and this is their argument, this is, it was worth a minimal amount when he took it. It's never going to change. Uh, and our point was, that's not true. Any any photographer, any commercial photographer that that again has worked any length of time knows that exactly what you just said, which is the value of photographs changes, especially if you're a portrait photographer and especially if you're a location photographer, you know, a, a building might mm-hmm. uh, burn to the ground. It might, it might be demolished to, you know, make way for something new. A person that you photographed 20 years ago um, might've just passed away. Uh, so the, the, the value of photographs is, is not fixed. It's, it's fluid. You know, so so the other, uh, you know, the, the I, I I will hand it to uh, the defendant's counsel in the Brammer case. I mean, they they did they did make arguments about all four elements of fair use, and they were they were poor arguments from from my standpoint. But they they were they were addressing them anyway. They were addressing them, yeah. yeah. And, the, and the flip side of that is the, the danger of that, and I, and I guess the benefit to my client, Mr. Brammer, and and any other any other photographer plaintiff that that has similar facts is that the court the court addressed all four of the arguments. They were and 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 in, not not just not just ruled in our favor, but in fa- emphatically ruled in our favor. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that one of the reasons why you think it became a, a published? Uh, uh, I I, th- I think so. It's also an appeals case uh, too, which you know just automatically garners a little bit more attention. And you know, cases that are appealed tend to be issues that both sides feel very strongly about, uh-huh. and and they uh, again very generally that's the case because it's it's an issue that may not have been definitively decided prior so 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 it's cases that are published i i would say disproportionately are cases that are are appeals cases are higher just because there's an issue that that people disagree and everybody wants to get settled that's great well this sounds like a a great success i mean uh, or at least uh standing holding up some bulwarks to changes that uh let's say the commercial enterprises around photography might have been wanting to keep uh, in place in the sense that, you know, we can just use this stuff for free. And here's, uh, here's a little like bump in the road anyway for that idea. And, uh, yeah, and let's, let's hope and it stands the, up. The, the funny thing about the case, and uh, I can't talk too much about it, but the funny thing about the case is I have since, since the settlement in the Brammer case, mm-hmm. uh, I have, I have three other clients with, 
nearly identical cases against violent use. Uh-huh. And they're, they're active, they're active being actively, actively litigated right now. Huh. And I, I'm not making this up. The defendant has put forth virtually the same defenses. Wow. <laughs> uh, and, you, and you implied, and maybe you can't talk about it, that, you know, Violent Hughes is not necessarily the uh, organization that is pushing these cases forward. Maybe there there's people behind them, law firms or others that want to establish precedent yeah. in the other direction. Yeah. I'm, and, I, and I'm not really sure. Mm. Uh, you know, it, it's, it, 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 it defies, I mean, at least from my perspective, it, it decide it, it defies logic just because, the, the the alleged infringement of the three open cases mm-hmm. is virtually identical to uh, the use that Violet Hughes made of Mr. Brammer's image. Same same URL, same context, same page, same same purpose. Wow. So I, I'm I'm just I'm a little I'm a little confused as to as to what what the defense may be this time around. I guess we're going to have to follow up on that too then yeah. because they just won't quit. Uh, interesting. So can we jump over real quickly to, to Vivian Meyer? Uh, if there's anything to update, I know that we didn't dig into it too deeply in the last episode because we were concentrated on the Brammer case, but, um, and you may have jumped around now that you're working on the disfarmer, but is there anything to mention to update us on that? Yeah. Yeah. The Vivian Meyer case, uh, after, after a number of years, is we we there's an end in sight okay. which is which is wonderful so the case the estate was opened in um 2014 uh it's now 2020 uh there the, the case has slowly but surely been moving toward the point that we're we almost find ourselves in or at now which is in the end there there will be a final full evidentiary hearing on the motions for airship that are petitions rather petitions for airship that are that are currently before the probate court. So there's 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 a lot that has taken place between 2014 and two, and and now, but in the end, uh, the case is of of a certain complexity that I think. Uh, warrants what is going to happen. We're, we are going to have a full hearing of, of the evidence uh, there, and w- which is quite unusual for for a probate case. Uh, the, the case is remarkably complicated in that there are 170 individuals that are that play a part in the determination of airship hmm. and. Of those 170, I think there's 171. Uh, of those 171 individuals, nine are potential heirs, and nine, uh, not all of them have are part of the petition for a declaration of heirship. So the idea that this hearing will kind of air everything, it's going to open all the windows and and get everything out on the table. Is that the the hope? Yes. Right. Yes. And so we, you know, just, just to, uh, you know, just to, I mean, I I say this just because uh, even, even, you know, the, the best of us, including reporters and, and others sometimes make the mistake of saying, well, there's, there's some kind of suit. There's some someone sued somebody else in the estate. That that's that's just not accurate. The only the only active case involving the Vivian Meyer estate is the probate. Okay. 
And, and, and the only thing remaining for the court left to do is to determine who the heirs are, if there are any. Uh, and there are certain legal standards, evidentiary standards that need to be met in order to prove that individuals are indeed uh, heirs to the estate. And, and that's you, what- Are you counsel what, for some of the heirs? Are you, are you gonna be counsel? I am, yes. Okay. I'm, I'm counsel to five of the potential heirs. Gotcha. Well, and let's catch up on that too. When, when is that hearing set for? Uh, we don't have a date for a final hearing. Uh, we have a preliminary hearing set for April 2nd of this year, uh, at which point the probate judge is going to review uh, our, our, our evidence, mm-hmm. is going to review in, you know, uh, very um, uh, superficially review what evidence we have, how many documents, who's, who's going to attest to certain things, can they, can they, be, um, can they be authenticated, can they be certified. Mm-hmm. We're also going to provide them with a list of witnesses, who they are, what they're going to testify to, uh, and so forth. So I think it's the probate's court way of of performing, you know, j- just because there's so many, there's so much yeah, information. Triage, involved. Right. Yeah, it's it's a way the court is going to just um, figure out before scheduling, you know, a week's worth of the court's time for a for an evidentiary hearing, just to make sure make sure that they're. You know, uh, for lack of a, for lack of a better legal term, that that we have our we we have our our information in order yes. before we find yeah. we schedule the final evidentiary hearing. Oh, road, I, I I think it is a road trip here. I think so too. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It, is it, it open to the public? It, <laughs> at least the hearing. It, oh, it's public. Okay. Um, it, <laughs> road trip. <laughs> there's one perfect case that that you you want to witness. I think this is going to be the one. I mean, we we are going to. We're going to have potentially have uh, hundreds of documents as evidence, as well as mm, conservatively probably twelve to fifteen live witnesses, including potential heirs, genealogists, wow. uh, other individuals, all hmm. mostly all traveling in from uh, different countries in in Europe to testify about their their piece of <laughs> of the, the genealogical puzzle. Wow. So basically what you're saying is that since your first appearance on our podcast, your career has really taken off, huh? <laughs> it's, it is, it is, is never it is never dull. <laughs> All right. So let's jump over to Michael Disfarmer and maybe uh, I can just do a, a brief introduction to the uh, Yeah. Th- this is an interesting case. Yeah. So Michael Disfarmer and I guess many people may know of him, uh, was a, a rural portrait photographer in Arkansas. Arkansas, yeah. From the 20s through the 50s, he kind of uh, hung a shingle in this small town and and did portraits of um, of the local folk, you know, the farmers and, and the soldiers and the young girls. Now, and One thing I'm curious, was he, prof- was he actually a working photographer? Was this something he did as a hobby? Yes. No, he was, he had no, no, he a was, studio he photographer was, his whole life. Yeah. He was absolutely a, a professional okay. and a very... Dedicated, um, you know, commercially successful photographer. Okay. It sounds like yeah, he was he, a character too. Like you know, he his name was not Disfarmer. He he changed it in what people believe is kind of a a, a diss to the farming. Yeah. The you know this idea of being a, a, a yokel. You know, and he wasn't yeah. he wasn't crazy the way he, he I guess he was grew up or was uh, expected to be, and he became a bit of a, a bohemian. No, is that fair to say? It's uh, it's um it's it's say. really interesting. It it's th- this case the this farmer case is is like like anything like anything else that there and you know it it happens to be the the narrative that that has been 
that has been repeated over the years, there are similarities between the Disfarmer case and the Vivian Meyer case. Right. In, right. It's a know, way to kind of also uh, marginalize a little bit, right? When you, when you start talking about people in, in these ways, like they're just a maid or they're just a such and such. That's, and, that's right. Um, and, it's, and it's never, and we all know, it's, it's never that simple. Right. And, and the dis- I mean, Alan's just a podcast host. I mean, his, his <laughs> photography, what about him? <laughs> um, but no, can I just jump real, real quick in? I'm sorry to interrupt, but I wanted to kind of finish the, the summary, at least as, as far as I know it, and then I'll, I'm going to let you run with it because, uh, you know, we want to do this regularly, and this is kind of meant for the audience that we're going to do a kind of hopefully returning segments as this case uh, evolves. But, um, you know, he, he died... Uh, without any, at the time, it seemed known heirs and his negatives were, I guess, taken in by uh, the local, a uh, local friend, a former mayor of the 3, town. 3,000 glass plates. And, um, yeah. and, then and let me, yeah, they I'm, found, just, I'm just going to correct you real quickly mm-hmm. because please, un, unlike the, unlike the Vivian Meyer case, uh, there, uh, there, there is a probate court order, mm. uh, d- dividing his estate. Okay. So from the, the time, from back then, from when he died, that's correct. Okay, that's correct. And it and it was, in some ways, the case is a little bit easier uh, to to trace the genealogy and and the potential heirship because he had six brothers and sisters, all all of whom were identified in the probate order uh, wow. dividing his estate. So they all got um, three of them were living at the time of his death. Three of them had passed away, but the three that had passed away. All had all had children, so one sixth of Disfarmer's estate was equally divided uh, among the six siblings, and for the three that had already passed away, equal, that one sixth equally among the the, the closest living children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we know we know exactly how the estate was divided at the time. Um, what, what the problems the problems started after that. Uh, and the problems were basically that the images, the prints and the negatives, and I guess prints were then made from these negatives, were distributed kind of into the New York art world uh, in the 70s and 80s and, and sold very well. And several gallery owners and collectors, and I imagine a few other people that we're not sure about, Notables, yeah. were, were profiting yeah. off of this. And uh, it slipped through the cracks, is that fair to say? And now, yeah, now the cases you can tell us. It, there, there's some similarities between the two cases, the Vivian Meyer case and the Disfarmer case, but there are also some some dramatic differences. And the, and the biggest difference in the Disfarmer case is that um, potentially, we, we still don't know, uh, but potentially the negatives were acquired legally. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just like the Vivian Meyer case, there is there is a fundamental and clear difference between the, the the legal possession and ownership of negatives and prints and the copyright. Those those are two fundamentally separate things. And like the Meyer case, the the individuals and the entities that were responsible for the dissemination and the and the the let, let's call it marketing and the distribution of the disfarmer images failed to acquire the copyright. Um, whether, whether or not they did that purposely or, or out of ignorance, it doesn't really matter. So you could the, own a negative, 
but you may not own the rights to the negative. Is that what you're saying? The reproduction. Of the, repro the reproduction rights, yes. Yes. So physical possession of an original work is one thing. The copyright to that same work is something completely different. Usually, in the case of, in the case of photographs, a photogra photography is, a, is the best example. Usually, they go hand in hand. The author of the photograph possesses, whether or not it's the digital file or a negative or a print, the author is the one, at least you know, for the, for the time being, after the creation, is both the possessor of the actual work, digital image, print, uh, slide, negative, and the copyright. That's, where, that's the default position. Everything starts there. Now, like the Vivian Meyer case, uh, things can, those two things can separate. Uh, cop copyright can only be transferred and assigned by written instrument, by statute. Therefore, just because you stumble upon um, some negatives in an antique store or in a, you know, a, a, a not paid for storage locker or a, you know, a, a barn or a, an abandoned house in the Bisbarmer case, just because you might have stumbled upon something like that and in the best case scenario, legally bought or, or was given or, or, you know, in any other way, ac legally acquired those, the physical negatives or prints, copyright does not automatically come with that. That's the issue. And copyright is the right to copy, disseminate, make, make derivatives, uh, basically exploit the work. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, that, that fork or that break took place the moment that the individual who, who found the disbarmer negatives after, after about a decade of, of, uh, of kind of essentially abandonment that took place when he failed to do any kind of due diligence about the copyright holder of the, of the images, which happens to be his, Mr. Disfarmer's descendants. Right. Would it be fair to say that this is probably one of the most misunderstood concepts of photography and ownership of photographs? Yes, yes, certainly. And even even the best of us uh, have a difficult time squaring those two things. Yeah, and it's it's second nature to it's second nature to an intellectual property attorney, uh, and maybe maybe even a photographer. But it, it's, it's certainly not second nature to anybody else. The Disfarmer case is even more interesting because there's an issue of, there's an issue of that's not present in the Vivian Meyer case, which is a, it's a legitimate legal issue, which is Disfarmer was a small town portrait photographer. He, he had clients that literally walked in his front door paid him to take their photograph and walked away either probably, probably not that same day, but probably very shortly thereafter with some prints. That is a completely different, potentially, we think we're on, we think we're on the right end of it, but potentially there is a legitimate legal issue as to whether a client of a portrait studio is hiring the photographer under work for hire circumstances and instead of something else. Hmm. So if they're work for hire, then the copyright issue gets a little bit more uh, gray. Mm. Uh, right. Perhaps now, then the, the subject then owns the copyright? Pot the, potentially, yeah. but 
and to make things even more complicated, in between the time that this farmer worked and created these these studio portraits, and now and and more and more more importantly, when the copyright was appropriated by um, you know a certain individual and a, and a couple of business entities, the law changed. Yeah. <laughs> so so the copyright law of 1976 uh, grandfathered in. All pre- work previously uh, created before uh, the passage of of the Copyright Act. So there there is there there is a le- legitimate legal issue as to what type of work in terms of copyright and copyrightability. What type of work was this farmer creating, and therefore where the copy where does the copyright lie? Can, can I make a suggestion? Get yourself a good attorney. Seriously. Uh, <laughs> this isn't easy. <laughs> so can you give us a little uh, idea then of what, you know, what we have to look forward to when we come back to you and talk to you over the months uh, regarding this case and like what are the next steps for you and your clients yeah. and where we're at in the, in the stage? Yeah. So there are, in the Disfarmer case, uh, because, of, because of the passage of time, there, the work has been... The work has been copied and reproduced and disseminated and sold and resold under many different circumstances. Part of our job now is taking a taking an inventory of the last 35 years. Where has work ended up? Who copied it? Who sold it? Under what circumstances? Uh, but fundamentally, uh, the there there is there are a couple main actors in the Disfarmer case. Uh, some some with in, from our perspective, a tremendous amount of liability, others with very, very little. And we are trying to, I'm, my office is currently in negotiations with a couple of those parties to determine uh, what to do. Hmm. You're talking to the people. There's still the potential yes. for a settlement and agreement and, yes. and figuring this out without yes. going to trial, right? And, 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 and I'm like, assuming most of these are galleries and, and sellers of photo prints, fine art prints. Is that? That's correct. Yeah. That's now, correct. Like, like anything, some... Some uh, some potential opposing parties are understand understand the 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 value and the need of of handling things without litigation. Others others it's the exact opposite. So mm-hmm. we're not. It, it's such a complex, constantly shifting uh, case that we're not. I'm not exactly sure where things are going to end up, but uh, we we are slowly but surely making progress toward a resolution that that benefits everybody, mm-hmm. and that's. That's the way it should be. Now, even though obviously the galleries and a lot of dealers would not be real happy with your point of view, how many of them are sympathetic or understand that they really these things have to be put into place and there are guidelines that have to be respected? What's, uh, are, are most of them on board with this, even though they may not be happy with the fact they might have to write a check? I, 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 I believe so. Uh, you know, what... What continues to what continues to surprise me is that that individuals and parties that really should know better uh, soldier on with without without in my opinion doing doing the work and doing the research and securing the permission that they should. So and I, and I'm not sure how that happens. I'm not sure how it happens. Why? Why a an experienced New York gallery that deals in copyrighted work 
would proceed with with you know supervising the the printing of archival negatives in limited editions and selling them uh, to collectors without being certain of the copyright. Right. Um, for, do you, do you yeah. think it's fair to say though that you know in the past fifty years or, or so since these images came came to light and were beginning to be sold that the attitude and and the ideas have changed so it's kind of a legitimate a legitimate mistake if you want to call it that way in the sense that people there was a resurgence of finding you know older work even in music and you know uh and putting that out to the public and uh obviously they were profiting off of it so they i agree they should have done their due diligence but do you think there's some idea or some validity in the idea that um we've come to realize this over the past 50 years more so than back then or is that just my uh wishful thinking well i mean i'm not yeah it's 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 certainly not a a clear there's certainly not an obvious answer to that because there despite on paper uh someone's whether or not it's the authors or or the author's heirs or or whoever so, despite someone's copyright being violated there is a there is an overall value to to disseminating very good works of art mm. whether whether or not it's music or photography or or painting or or anything there there is an inherent value to that but my point would always be all of those things can be accomplished if the would-be copier of of the work and the and the and the individual or the entity that wants to uh, wants to display or or disseminate uh, someone's work does a little bit of work up front. Right. I mean yeah. that that solves the problem. It, it's just it's the you know the, the 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 fundamental thing that you learn the first week of law school is that. You know, a little bit of extra time up front, right. at least envisioning, uh, contemplating what potentially could go wrong. That time, you you pay for that time. You know, times a hundred because the alternative, where you just plow forward without doing the that that work, to reap a hundred times the damages, uh, compared to just doing a little bit of legwork and a little bit of preparation and a little bit of uh, contingency planning. And, and I'm afraid that's that's the same dynamic, or that I dynamic that a lot of these galleries and a lot of these individuals did. They, they for whatever reason, be it impatience or or just plain you know, you know, rationalizing their behavior, don't do that little bit of of research and planning beforehand and plow forward, and then they get themselves deeper and deeper and deeper into the situation where they where they they can't get themselves out of. And in general. As you indicated before, if you know the prints and the negatives were sold and and whatever archival prints were available were then resold, we wouldn't really be having this issue. But the fact that the, you know the those that got a hold of the negatives made the copies regularly and repeatedly and then started selling them, uh, that's that's the heart of the issue. Yeah, and the difference for my clients in both cases is that there's a significant amount of revenue that was right. generated based on the, the exploitation of the copyright. Right. Um, it would still be an issue. Trust mm-hmm. that this farmer, that his farmer family and the, and the, uh, the members of the family that I represent 
are are in it for are in it for a multitude of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and can you say who you are representing? I, I represent. Uh, there, there are approximately in the Disformer case. There are approximately we haven't we haven't nailed down the exact number, but there there are approximately eighty five to ninety individuals mm-hmm. that are members of the extended family of of Mr. Disformer, and that is closest living descendants of one of the six heirs mm-hmm. or one of the six siblings. Mm-hmm. Uh, my office represents about fifty five to sixty of those individuals. Wow. So nobody, nobody's going to die a zillionaire, but it's about principle, no. really. No, 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 and and we've and in a case like this, nobody is going to get rich because number one, the 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 revenue that's been generated is is some of it is not recoverable, but but other, I mean, the, I I can say without question, the my clients are interested in number one, setting the record straight. Right. They want to make sure that uh, Mr. Disfarmer is accurately depicted, uh, which which is kind of gone, you know, kind of scarily off course. Uh, you know, he's, he's depicted as this alcoholic that was a loner and, you know, uh, was, was, was odd and peculiar. That's absolutely not true. Uh, we, we've, I've been to Arkansas with, but I, I'm working with a pair of researchers for the past nine months and we've made trips to Arkansas and we've talked to in person, uh, countless numbers, uh, countless members of his extended family, and most of them have stories about how they, how he used to invite them into a studio and show them how things work and play the fiddle at night. And you know, I mean, he, he absolutely was not this, this, this odd figure that we think, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of adds. Uh, it, in some weird way adds value to Absolutely. his work. Sure. Yeah, to the sure. myth. Sure. But they're in it for a lot of very good reasons. Mm, great. I, I'm hoping we can just kind of throw out what you think we can expect over the next month or so in terms of uh, the development of the case. I know you're still doing research and all that, but... Yeah, and there um, there's some boring kind of procedural issues that, that need to take place, but there are also some really interesting legal issues that um, maybe not, they, they might not be resolved in the past month, but are certainly, they're on the horizon and they're certainly at some point going to have to be resolved, whether or not uh, a court decide on them or or negotiated by the by the parties but the ones that i mentioned number one uh i mean fundamentally uh a uh, a prerequisite as of march of this past or last year the supreme court in the fourth estate decision uh held that any plaintiff who uh brings a suit or a cause of action for copyright infringement must have registered the work prior to initiating litigation, which means that that if and when my clients are to be involved in litigating a matter and in, in, you know, regarding any kind of potential opposing party, the work itself has to be the subject of a completed application with the, the United States Copyright Office. That is that is a difference um, as of March of 2019. So before anything else happens, uh, we have to register his work, which we are in, in the process of doing now, which is gathering all of his work, making making high enough resolution copies of all of his work, putting them in putting them in in discernible groups that we can register with the the or apply for registration with the copyright office. That's the main thing that's going to be happening in the next month. Okay. All right. Uh, so then we'll come back. We'll we'll ask you about how that's gone. I have actually a few questions, maybe in the bigger picture, regarding. 
uh, well, the heirs specifically, and maybe some of his, uh, about his history. But I also have this, this question that, let's say, for example, when this is all sorted out, and we don't have to answer it now, we maybe leave it, leave it with this as like the uh, cliffhanger. But, you know, <laughs> if, if let's say this all gets sorted out and, uh, you know, future copyright monies go to the proper uh, descendants and the proper heirs, is there the risk that the images won't be disseminated and they won't be out there as much because, you know, they're not going to be sold, yeah. they're not going to be pushed by those that can profit off of them? I, 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 can, I, I can definitively tell you that the, the answer is no. There is, there is no chance that the family is going to, uh, if, if they prevail, there is no chance that they're, they're not going to make the images uh, uh, available to the public. It's, that's exactly the opposite of what their, their desire is. Yeah. Their, their desire is to, um, I mean, they, they're to, almost to the person, they are thrilled that they are descendant of someone, mm. someone like Mr. Bisfarmer, right. and are incredibly proud of the work, and and have have exactly the opposite of of what you just described. In that they, you know, they 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 want to make sure but that will they have the means though, and the and the distribution networks and the connections and things like that. I mean, obviously his work is established and it's out there in museums and everyone knows about it, but uh, it's just one of those questions that maybe it's the flip side of uh, when things aren't in the hands necessarily of commercial vendors, they, they often get uh, put in the, in the shadows. And my short answer, yes. If, if, if my clients prevail, they will, they will have the means to, uh, to, to, make the work available and to ha have the work continue, uh, you know, to be available to the public. Maybe even in a better way. Yeah. Uh, David, uh, thank you again. Uh, fascinating uh, discussion. Uh, photography is more than uh, cameras and lenses uh, and, and, and megapixels for sure. Uh, if people want to catch up to uh, what you do on a website, where can they go? My my commercial website is my first and last name. So it is it is daviddeal.com. Okay. There you go. Uh, fascinating stuff, an interesting niche of the legal uh, profession that affects all of us here that were listening to the show. Uh, and we look forward to having you back and uh, you know, getting some updates on things. Thanks again, David. Thank you very much, Alan. And John. Okay. Okay. Thanks, Dave. Okay, that's our show. Now it's time to go. Are you not a regular subscriber to our podcast? All you have to do is head on over to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, or Spotify and sign up. It's a freebie. It won't cost you a dime. And you can always find this on the BH Explorer website as well as the BH Photography Podcast Facebook group. My name is Alan Weitz. Some things never change. And on behalf of John Harrison, Jason Tables, thank you so much for tuning in today.